I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, this is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley, the podcast about work, psychology, and life. Thank you so much for joining. Actually, if you are interested in workplace culture and anything to do with improving work, then you might enjoy the the free workplace culture course that I've created. And you can access it today if you pre-order my new book. So my new book, Fortitude, is really sort of an investigation and exploration part detective novel it's not really a detective novel but me investigating the way we talk about resilience and maybe the mistakes we make about it along the way going into the likes of growth mindset going into why a lot of people who find themselves doing resilience courses don't feel any more resilient so explore all of those things and then really find very substantial evidence of where resilience really lies it's got fabulous reviews it's really, um, it's it's just had a, an incredible response from the people who've seen it. It's out on the 25th of August. If you pre-order it now, then you get access to this free course about workplace culture. Access it today. So, but in that in that course, I explain a really simple model of workplace culture and I apply it to the hybrid era that we're all in. I talk about the importance of voice. That's uh, the model is voice affiliation, space and articulation. Voice is workers feeling heard and workers feeling like they've got a stake in in the culture that they're part of. Affiliation, it's really critical, really good cultures. Generally, people feel part of something. They feel like we're all in we're all in this together. Uh, Space, every good culture operates with slack in the system and articulation. The thing about culture club is everyone talks about culture club. The the uh, people talk about their culture and they define it and they lay it down. So you'll see sort of very much YouTube style collection of content that you can delve into. The average clip's about four or five, six minutes. It's over, it's almost two hours of content on there. It's incredibly accessible. And I've had really lovely feedback from the hundreds and hundreds of people who've taken it. Um, today's guest is a response to the recent episode that we've looked at the, the the sort of the way that the office has been evolving we've looked through very much an academic lens people who've done research albeit that they've spoken to real people um today's guest is a response to that and tom goodwin is a i guess a provocateur someone who likes um giving T- uh, sort of interesting takes on the internet. He describes himself not necessarily as a futurist. He describes himself as someone who's interested in nowism, 
and meaning that you know there's plenty of opportunities that are here now and someone standing in front of you and telling you how artificial intelligence or how uh, the blockchain are going to change your life is to some extent giving you something to worry about that you can't necessarily action today. Tom Goodwin is someone who is one of the most followed people on LinkedIn. He's got a huge platform where he very much talks about practical applications of technology today. So it's a really interesting, I think, firstly, counterpoint to some of the academics. Secondly, a bit of a, an advocacy case for being together and being in the office. I don't agree with everything he said, um, it, but he, there's some interesting stuff along the way. Just a few things to call out for you. He's a Brit, but he lives in the US, which is why he mentions Instacart. And for Instacart, you might think a cardo or online grocery shopping. Um, I mentioned the push versus the pull of the office. Probably someone cleverer than me has applied this to the office. I thought of it on the spur of the moment, and I think I use push and pull in the opposite ways. The push towards the office is, I guess, surely bosses demanding the return to the office. And the pull is surely the, the desire that we have that the office draws us in magnetically to want to have inspiring contacts. I think I mix it up in the conversation. Um, at some point, Tom says that the people who don't come into the office are probably the people you're happy to get rid of. And I have a strong disagreement on that. You know, I've, I've met plenty of people whose reason to not want to go into the office is not a degree of detachment, disengagement with the office, but rather because, you know, their life is balanced. They've got a long commute. So strong disagreement on that. I didn't challenge him in the moment. But you recognise, look, the, the benefit of giving platform to voices who disagree is we learn something in that disagreement. Uh, so I think you'll enjoy this conversation. It's It was in service of promoting Tom's book, which is a rewrite of, of his former book. It's uh, a book called Digital Darwinism. There's a link to it in the show notes. Um, and really interestingly, he was in, he was asked to do another book. He didn't necessarily feel that he wanted to do another book. And he just spent some time revisiting the old one. He says he rewrote 90% of it. So uh, it's in it's in service of that, but it's always good to have a good conversation with Tom, and I think you'll enjoy this discussion. Tom, thank you so much for coming back. And I, I think it was like a few years ago now that I, I met you in a meeting room somewhere. And so we're a few years on, and so I'd really love you to reintroduce yourself. Who are you and what do you do? Uh, I am Tom Goodwin. I write and speak and most of all think about the future and how the technology is changing the world and how it isn't. And I have this approach I'm trying to kind of launch called Nowism, which is not to be a sort of futurist that talks about nanobots and robots doing our jobs and, you know, living on Mars. And it's much more, how do we make sense of what we have? You know, what does servers mean? What does cloud computing mean? What can 5G do? It's a sort of pragmatic approach to the changes in the world that matter. So on, on the lines of that, I've, saw, I've seen you talking about, you know, there's no point anyone fetishizing the metaverse right now when gaming is just this remarkable and populous phenomenon that lives amongst us. And it's, it's, is that an example of nowism? It's a perfect example. I mean, 3 billion people regularly play games. Um, I've worked in advertising broadly for 20 years and we've never had any interest in them whatsoever. We've always thought of them as being losers that live in their mum's basements, that order pizza. Um, these are the sort of world's least attractive consumers. And that's not true. They're, they're always 
been very interesting, affluent, influential people that played games and we ignored them. Um, we never showed any interest. We never showed any empathy. We never showed any imagination. And in some ways, it's quite nice that we're now talking about these people and these behaviors. But I also get frustrated that the only reason it's happened, you know, is because of blockchain and AR headsets and all sorts of fancy technology, when I'd love us to focus a lot more on people and their behaviors and their expectations. And I'm really interested because the reason why this conversation is so appealing is because some of the pushback I've had from recent episodes, which we've we've really gone deep on academic research and, and picking the brains of academics as they plot out what the future of work has got for us, is that some of the accusations is that it's, it's lacked some practicality. It doesn't necessarily look like the world of work that we are currently working in. Um, and so the reason why I wanted to chat to you is because the way I see it is that you strike me as like the person who's not unafraid of maybe saying unpopular things, but illustrating something that maybe is, is sort of the elephant in the room. You're the, you're the man who, you're the child who tells the emperor he's got no clothes on to some extent. Is that, do I see that right? And based on that, do you see yourself as, therefore as an insider or an outsider? That's a very good question. Um, one thing I'm certainly not is a provocateur. I'm not a contrarian. I never say things to get a, a rise out of people, and I never take different opinions for the sake of it. Um, I have a weird ability to not really care that much about what people think of what I talk about. I mean, I don't go out to um, ruffle feathers. I don't go out to upset people, but I just like to be quite honest. And I like to start debates that perhaps people aren't having. And above all else, I love to listen. I think social media and podcasts so often are about talking. Um, all I do, there's no genius behind what I do, which is a little disappointing. I spend a lot of time reading, observing, talking to very different people. Uh, when the pandemic hit, um, I made a concerted effort to travel out to parts of America that were opening up because I thought for once the way to view the future is not to go to Taipei. Uh, it's not to go to San Jose. Uh, it's not to go to Israel. It's actually to go to rural Georgia. You know, how are car dealerships opening up after the pandemic? How are factory owners working? And I don't set up um, elaborate sort of case study interviews. I don't set up stakeholder interviews. I just go to a bar and I get talking to people. Um, I play golf at local golf courses where all sorts of weird and wonderful people happen to play golf and they talk to me about their lives. Um, and I think when you just have conversations and when you get into um, the sort of nuances of life, um, you realize that things are different. And it's not that the academics that you have on your show are wrong. It's certainly not that they are stupid. It's just that the deeper you go into one field, the more you sort of celebrate a circular logic, you celebrate a depth of expertise and I think specifically today with the way the algorithms and news coverage work is you tend to get well known if you have a simple and repetitive message, which is making one point over and over again. And the moment you entertain the idea of nuance or complexity or balance or the fact that things may be different depending on your seniority, the fact that things may be different depending on your class, that things will be different in different countries, things will be different between rural areas and urban areas, the moment you get into that um, complexity. Complexity, you, your message get lost. Uh, your message gets lost, and then you don't tend to become as well known. Um, so I'm sort of here, really, to sort of explore the nuance of the changing world. You're the complexity candidate. 
only by representing different opinions. Um, right. You know, we we have all been very quick to embrace the fact that working from home is working, for example. But I don't think that many people are thinking what would have happened to our careers if we did a very different job. You know, what would have happened to our careers if we were architects? What would happen if we worked in local government um, doing business case planning? What would happen um, if we worked in sales? Right? So tell me this. So, so what do you think the, you know, because one of the things then you've, you've, um, you've said a lot is like, and, and look, self-evidently that the, the whole discussion about working from home is by its very nature is a, a first world problem in the sense that half of the world can't work from home. And so, you know, yeah. with that caveat, with that important caveat, um, what do you, how do you see the changing relationship with the office then? I think in a way it's very important to make a distinguish, uh, distinction between two different types of jobs. And there is uh, an increasing importance on what for many years people called knowledge work. Um, I think the overriding trend is in the world is the companies that used to compete on expertise and on efficiency and on scale are starting to compete on imagination and empathy and creativity. You know, if you look at the business of making cars, it's kind of gone from being able to make cars cheaper enough that people could buy them to making cars good enough that they were different. And now actually the questions in car making are much more about things like dog mode. Um, they're much more about um, how you find a good charger network. They're much more interesting and complex questions. So I think a lot of the people that we are talking to... Sorry, what's before, dog mode? <laughs> dog mode on a Tesla is the ability to keep air conditioning on in your car when it's not turned on, which means that when you go um, and pick up your packet of cigarettes from a supermarket, you can keep your dog in the car and it won't die. Okay. And it's a wonderful okay. example. Uh, I'm not a Tesla lover, but it's a wonderful example of what happens when people working on a project are software engineers and not um, mechanical engineers, because a mechanical engineer would never have come up with that. Someone who's thought about the car and thought about the experience of the car can come up with dog mode. But I think, um, you know, the broader picture is many of our jobs are moving towards ones where we're becoming able to add more value through creativity, where the real value that we add is much less aligned to a time of work or a place of work or an amount of time working and much more about um, imagination and sparks of genius and having a, a width of friends, friends in our group. But we have to be very pragmatic about the fact that most people don't work in industries like that. If you try and go to air traffic control and think of a new way to um, process aircraft landing, it's not a great place to be creative. It's not a great place to have a few days away to get inspired, etc. So I think the majority of people will actually end up in a remarkably similar situation to where we were before. And that's because I think a lot of life tends to work in paradigms. Um, the pandemic introduced a radically new paradigm where we weren't taking our kids to school. We weren't um, seeing granny on the way back from school. We weren't able to pop into a, a store and get some shoes on our way back from work. And therefore, everything fell into the paradigm of working from home. And that's when Peloton makes sense. That's when Instagram, Instacart made sense. And that sort of structure and that system worked very well for people because there was no ambiguity. You know, no one was late for a call ever because there was no reason ever to be late for a call. Um, no one was ever struggling with internet reception because everyone's working from home. And then when you go to this sort of hybrid world, 
I think what many people are realizing is it's almost the worst of both paradigms. Um, the paradigm of working in an office was one way you might drop your kids off on the way to school. It was one way you might go shopping in your lunch break. Um, it was one way you may take your kids to gymnastics in the evening and then, um, you know, go and see your uh, friend while you're waiting for them. And the moment you have this sort of interim, everything gets very messy. Um, you know, work becomes much more stressful because people don't know how to show that they're busy. Um, arranging calls becomes difficult because people are on trains traveling to meetings at the same time as being expected to do video calls. And I think we may find that this sort of hybrid um, interim sort of mid paradigm thing just doesn't quite work because either the forces take us towards the stay at home paradigm or the go to the office paradigm. But you said, you said for most people we'll return to something close to what we had before. So what you can see the return to a five day week in the office. Um, when I say close to, I, I, I wouldn't want to get into numbers on how many hours people would spend. Um, I think it's quite likely that people who are working in the office two days a week will suddenly find out that there's a reason to be there three days a week. I think paranoia will set in where people slow realized that the people who appeared to be in the office more, you know, seem to be talking more with senior management. You know, when layoffs happen, if we are on the edge of recession, and it does appear that people getting laid off are those who showed their face less, then all of a sudden, I think a culture of distrust comes in. Um, so that would be like, that, that would be a push versus pull. That would be a pull to the office for fear and emotional reasons. And I guess, you know, the critical question would be, what's the enlightened organization going to do to either create something that's more positive or productive that pushes people towards the office? I think we may have to accept that human beings are sort of tragically flawed and we may need to have more open conversations about some of the dynamics that really happen. Um, gossip happens in an office and everyone thinks of gossip as being a horrible thing. It is largely fairly horrible, but it's also a great way that information is shared informally. Um, and I think what we will find is those that are part of an office structure and take part in more gossip get access to more information. Um, we will find that those people tend to form tribes of people around them who can help them make um, persuasive arguments, who can help them share information informally. You know, I think we must remember that lots of people like going to an office because of egos. Lots of people like standing on stages at conferences because it makes them feel um, a huge sense of sort of validation validation. And I think any plan for the future and enlightened companies, they should not be trying to use these forces for their advantages. They shouldn't be trying to, you know, leverage gossip as a, as a wonderful technique or, you know, embracing the fact that people um, snog each other at Christmas parties. They shouldn't be trying to sort of work with it, but they should be very enlightened about the reality of it. And these conversations lead to quite difficult decisions. Like, do you end up sort of banning gossip somehow so that people who aren't in the office are able to take advantage on, on a, in a similar plane? Um, do you have more formal ways to share information? Um, there are two things I'd like to point out at this point. Every incredibly vital conversation I ever had in my career started with the words, do you have five minutes? And it was always me in an office seeing someone who was very, very senior, who I would never normally have time to speak to. Um, who I'd never normally have cultural permission to speak to. And me simply seeing they're in a really good mood, they've come back to the office, it's, I know, 5.55 on a Thursday afternoon, 
uh, and I see them go into their office and I think now is a good time for me to knock on the door. And it was always those questions where I'd ask someone, you know, if they knew someone that would be a good mentor, I'd ask them for career advice. I'd ask them if I could um, do a project with them. It was always those moments. And I don't think there is a hybrid or a remote version of those conversations. And I'm also massively aware that we are able to be in these situations where we are comfortable working from home because we have reputations and because people trust us and because we trust people. And it's for me a little bit like looking at a 747 that's in the air. You know, everyone like me or like you, we have built our careers. We have got to a point where we have significant altitude and momentum and gravitational potential energy because of years spent honing these relationships, learning the softer skills, et cetera. And now we're in a situation where we're effectively able to sort of use that to glide down or perhaps even use that to, to slowly rise up. But there are many, many people who are not in these positions because they are early on in their career. And I don't quite know how they can take off in the same way that a plane takes off with engines if perhaps the world is making the assumption that everyone's working from home. And we don't look at a plane with four engines in the sky that can glide safely to land and think, why did we put engines on it? Because we know it never would have got there in the first place otherwise. I, I wonder if there's something that... Um you know, the interesting thing for me is when I chat to different cohorts of, of people in offices, one of the things that was expected was that younger workers would be more inclined because, you know, they're, they're often <clears throat> very focused on self-development. You know, the, the deal that we all fully understand and take on board is that we earn less at the start of our career than we will earn 10 years into our career. So there's, there's a clear understanding that we will improve and, and move up a scale. And so there was an expectation that younger workers would have an appetite to be in the office because it would produce some acceleration. And to, to some large extent, we're not witnessing that. We're all, you know, it's, it's not coming as natural. The, the expectation that younger workers would eagerly be in the office is observed in some cases, but it's not a whole trend. I wonder if there's been a rebalancing that, you know, maybe enlightened organizations in the way you've described it can, can articulate this and, and champion it. But there's been a shift that work used to be to some extent like school and it's become more like college in the sense that <laughs> your best friends at college weren't the people on your course. They were often like a, a random assembly of people from different courses <laughs> that you'd met in social scenarios. It was very rare that someone's social group was the people who did their course with them. And to some extent, I wonder if that's taken play, place that for younger workers who are entering the workforce have got a very transactional nature of their relationship with work. Now, it, it begs the question then, firstly, was there any benefit to sort of a greater degree of affiliation amongst people working together? Were in your example, there were more of those 515 conversations initiated by having that degree of connection and camaraderie. But will is this going to be a superpower that certain organizations then are able to tap into? They say, look, unashamedly, our culture is this. It won't be for everyone, but here's the benefit that we get from it. Do you, do you, do you see some connection between culture and innovation in that regard? Absolutely. I mean, it's a wonderful analogy that you just used. Um, I'd like to make it clear at this point I have been wrong 
quite quite a lot on this topic. Um, I assume by now that younger people who are working often from you know small cramped homes, they're often a walking distance away from a, a lovely office. I, I presume those people would be in pieces by now. And I presumed, um, you know, I mentor quite a few people who their very first jobs in the industry have been working from home and then working occasionally from the office. And it is staggering to me how comfortable they seem to be doing, um, how, how much they seem to prefer this, although they're preferring it to something they've never experienced. So um, I'm just not entirely sure how reasonable it is to evaluate where we are when we are in human terms so um so much at the front of this movement like we are at the incredibly early stages of this um we have had two years um perhaps two and a half years and most of that time has been so extraordinary that any sense of what we called success um, has been very different to what we would normally call success in a company. I mean, normally success is a great new project launch. Normally success is people thriving. Normally success is wonderful new ideas. And for about a year and a half, success has been people not having mental breakdowns. Success has been people not quitting their jobs. Success has been people maintaining some degree of, of mental health um, while maintaining things that have been done. It's going to be very interesting to look at what gets launched that's new over the next two years. You know, do we find that um, Apple are able to keep on churning out wonderful new headsets and a brilliant new software? Our car company is going to have the best years of their lives. A bank's going to do amazing new NPD. Um, or are we going to realize that actually there was something magical missing in this, in this period? Um, it's very much the case that innovation, um, relies massively on culture. And again, I think companies have done a wonderful job of maintaining culture, but I don't think companies have been able to change their culture um, or improve their culture in the last two years. And I think there are really interesting questions like innovation relies on trust. It relies on vulnerability. It relies on gossip. It relies on fearlessness. And I'm not entirely sure that the kind of paradigm of working remotely does wonderful things to aid that. Um, I'm not entirely sure that people have experienced the normal climate. You know, we've, we've had a long period of time where the job market has been very good for people. People have been getting very interesting pay raises. There's a sense that there's a shortage of workers. The moment that things get a little bit uh, spicy and people don't want to take risks, um, and the world seems to kind of flip back to a, a position of risk avoidance. I think the combination of recession and working from home could be quite tricky for people. It's, it's interesting what you say, isn't it? Because actually, we, we you know, broadly, if you're going to catalogue the story of the last three years, we went from one monoculture to another monoculture to actually <laughs> now this sort of big toxic soup so the, the first monoculture was that it, it was a given if you took a job 99 percent yeah. of the jobs that you applied for you would be expected to turn up at nine o'clock or thereabouts and leave at six o'clock or thereabouts monday to friday and like you didn't even question that too much because it was just it, it was a minor hygiene factor we, we then went to a, a way of working where everyone was working remotely and so it was just about what link am i meant to be dialed into where right now 
And then we went to something different. And that therein is the interesting part because yeah. when we read Glassdoor reviews before, well, it was understood that, you know, it was just the degree, the confection of various factors within that nine to six paradigm in organizations. Now we're, there's, there's a whole range. And it's to your point there, it begs the question that I hope we're going to get some honest and and clearly presented accounts of what the outcomes are. Because if now, if the, you know, the software equivalent of Pixar suddenly starts producing things that are a league more innovative or inventive than other organizations, or the new design business starts creating things more, and they're able to say, we want you to know that one of the critical components of this is the way that we work, and it's this, then it starts giving us a recipe book for, for you know, to try and understand the components of this. The challenge at the moment is that broadly what we've got, the big driving factor for organizations who are saying to people, want you in the office a certain number of days, is it's kind of bosses' whims. And I think that's why it's running aground a bit. Um, you know, the organizations, I, I did a, a roundtable with um, some people who occupied a, a beautiful building in uh, the city near Liverpool Street a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, the different people there. But they told me the average, four or five different companies, they told me the average office tenant um, presence was one day a week for their employees. Yeah. One yeah, day yeah. a week. And it's largely because people have been told you need to come into the office. And they're yeah. not really being given a an upside, a benefit, an advantage. So I think, you know, what you've said there feels like an outcome that we should be heading towards. Right now we're in a zone where I don't think anyone's necessarily explaining <laughs> I don't think anyone's necessarily explaining the benefits of being in the office in a way that is proving appealing to workers. I, I think we should be aware of how weird things are now. Um, I think everyone has done an incredibly good job of putting a brave face on what has been an incredibly traumatic period of time. And what I see both quantitatively and qualitatively are that people have probably never been more different to each other. Um, I would say 30% of people have never been so healthy, um, both physically and mentally. Um, and they are thriving in this environment and they are perhaps able to create boundaries better than others. And um, they perhaps have more discipline. They perhaps have um, a job that they care about more than others, or perhaps they are doing this very well because they don't care that much about it at all. But then the other side is that 30% of people I think are right on the edge. I think they are in worse mental health than they have been for a long time. I think they are doing all they can to hang on in there. And I think any approach to this should have a very open mind to how different our personal situations are, how different it is being young versus old, how different it is being rural versus urban, how different it is doing different types of jobs. You know, some jobs are almost sort of hand-based where you need to be in a place. Some are sort of ears-based, some are mouth-based. You know, any job in sales, I think, is uh, particularly destined to have a lot of face-to-face -face contact. Any job in coding, it's much, much easier to, you know, effectively segment projects into you know small workflows and then people can independently work on their own part of that so i think any conversation about this has to take into account the full width of this and the time dimension um, and also the degree to which companies are made up of these very different sectors 
you know, if you think about a large marketeer, they may have a factory where people need to be in a factory. They may have a, you know, IT department where people need to service machines in person. They may have a legal department where people need to um, have very significant, secure, proper meetings. And they may have a, you know, brand consulting department. They may have more um, sort of creative and independent things where people can work in very different ways. And again, that's where I see envy come in. Like I, I feel like I'm being much more negative than I normally am, but I see so many problems in the next year where envy and distrust come in. I see outsourcing to cheaper countries. I see all sorts of sort of dynamics, which I think will be very, very hard for companies to um, to deal with. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting what you say there because actually there's some degree of, uh, I'm, I'm putting something out this um, in, the, in the next couple of days, which is about potential pitfalls ahead for organisations. And one of the, the things that you find is that while workers who are on the upward trajectory at work may well be willing to put more application in and work harder, what we're seeing is workers who maybe have reached their maximum level but uh, <laughs> later in their career but have got lovely surroundings are very unwilling to make a journey into the office actually yeah. you know it seems like an annoyance with very little upside and so what you largely can get good good bodies whether they are societies or whether they are organizations generally have a strong sense that we're all in it together when you get that when you get a schism when you get a lack of cohesiveness it's generally when things start to fall apart and so if you've got workers who are maybe sort of in their last 15 years of their career not wanting to venture into the office and then younger workers who may be sort of there three or four days a, a week you're far more likely to get a sense that someone who's in the office who maybe earns half of what this person working from their garden office is earning is far more likely to think oh yeah i don't feel like the people i'm working with are part of the one yeah. of us and and you know Boris Johnson's decline is because he went from being one of us to one of them. You know, like th these things are so visceral that when when people feel like they're part of one of us, it can be incredibly energizing and motivating. And normally, it's the basis of most good workplace culture. It's like, oh yeah, it's us, it's us. We all feel like. And the challenge for organisations is if you're not careful, this complete autonomy about how people are working could have unexpected consequences. So it's interesting. It's resonant with what you were saying there. It's very interesting to me, and I got into a lot of trouble on Twitter a while ago for saying this, but I, I maintain this belief, and that is that if you were to arrange a sort of spectrum of people from those most keen to work in the office to those least keen to come into the office, generally speaking, those people who are least keen to come in the office, generally speaking, those are probably people that you are going to be okay without. And that sounds very dramatic. Um, when Airbnb announced their policy allowing people to work from anywhere and their website became swamped with people suddenly interested in working at Airbnb, I can't help but think if I worked in uh, talent for Airbnb, the idea that people have suddenly become interested in working for my big company because they can work from anywhere. For me, that's immediately people raising their hands and saying, I don't really want to be part of this company. Um, I am not saying there are not exceptions. There are some people who are so brilliant and so um, sort of so valued by the market that they can be people that expect the company to work around them somewhat. But most of the people I know, um, they like being part of something. They like a sense of belonging. Um, there's a wonderful um, 
sort of theory on the management of people called the sort of maths symbol theory, which is that when you're looking to evaluate people, some people are plus signs, some people are minus signs, some people are multiplication signs, and some people are divide, division signs. And when you're looking to sort of evaluate people in terms of a cultural um, energy, you know, the plus people are good at their job. They sort of add a sort of uh, a, a linear sense of improvement. The negatives, the sort of subtraction signs people, they take away a little bit, perhaps they're a little bit slower. Uh, there's the multipliers and the multipliers are magical. The multipliers can come into a meeting room. It doesn't mean they're eccentric. How do you recruit for a multiplier? <laughs> you 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 discover them you through word of mouth okay players uh, they have an energy they mean when they walk into a meeting room that people add more ideas they mean that people want to be part of a group of people they have a sort of uh, a charisma uh, a sort of enigmatic flair it doesn't mean they work incredibly hard it just means they are people who sort of add immeasurably and almost in a sort of exponential way to a company. And then there are the dividers and the dividers are people that don't do damage the same way that subtractors do. They completely destroy culture. You know, they're there saying sort of backhanded things after the meeting. They're creating little factions. They're spreading negativity. Um, and I've been each of these different characters actually at different points in my career. And I, I worry somehow that the current environment is not an easy one to find the multipliers. It's not an easy one for the multipliers to have their energy spread across the company. And these are ones that the detractors, the people that are hanging on, the people that are doing two or three jobs at the same time and getting paid for all of them without telling people, um, the people that can't be bothered, the people that turn their cameras off in meetings. Um, and when I say things like this, people are very quick to say, well, this is easy because you're extroverted, Tom, you know, you like people, you know, you're a white man, um, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I worry somehow that our social muscles have atrophied. Um, I'm not in any way extroverted. I'm very introverted. I used to hate small talk. I used to hate going to the kitchen and people ask you questions. It does not come naturally to me. But I realized I had to do that. I, I realized that a really important muscle for me to build was the what do you say in an elevator when people get in muscle. It was the what do you say when you're leaving the office muscle. And I, I worry somehow that we've become so used to uh, survival and we've become so poor at working out these muscles that we're now just trying to sort of hide away in a cupboard and hope that nothing difficult. If you happens. were saying, if you were saying something up now, if you like one of the organisations you work with came to you and said, "Can you help us describe, build a cookbook for good culture going forwards?" And and so you know, by the by the very nature of the question, it's going to be a, a bit simplistic and it's a bit sort of general. <laughs> but are there any things then that either in the cultures of organizations you've witnessed or in good behaviors elsewhere that you've said, actually, I think those people have stumbled upon the right way to go here. You know, so short of us returning to one of those monocultures of, of being in the office all the time or being remote all the time, are, are there any clues that organizations are giving you right now about the direction that you think enlightened firms will head towards? There are two very clear things that create culture but don't appear to be part of the cultural conversation. Uh, one is a very strong sense of what a company is trying to accomplish. And I don't necessarily mean that in a crunchy granola way. I don't mean that a company should have boards around the room saying their purpose. 
I just mean a company should have a very clear strategic roadmap of what its priorities and what its destination is over the next one or five or 10 years. Um, there are remarkably few companies that if you were to go in and say to people in an all agency or all staff meeting, you know, what's our plan for the next 10 years? There are remarkably few companies that would get even three people to say the same thing. If you know where you are trying to get to, it immediately creates a group sense of purpose, an individual sense of purpose. You then know when you're making progress towards that. I think it was a line from you, which you said a long time ago, which I absolutely loved, which is job satisfaction is basically marked by meaningful progress that you can see towards a notable goal. And if you accomplish something, and people know when it's worthwhile, if you accomplish something that's worthwhile, immediately your sense of alignment, your sense of purpose, your sense of belonging, your sense of pride, you know, rockets through the roof. Now, that's thing number one. And thing number two, I think, is to focus very much on a sort of results-driven workplace. I don't mean this in a horribly sales-driven way where you sort of bang a bell every time someone signs a contract. I just mean that so many personal appraisals, so many conversations should actually not be about how hard people are working. They shouldn't be about how much people have learned on a training program. They should simply be looking at the goal that we are working towards. You know, what have you done towards this? And I think the moment that people work like that, so much burnout disappears because you realize that you don't need to say yes to more than 10% of the meetings that come into your inbox. Suddenly, you know what to prioritize. Suddenly, you know not to be performative in your role, but actually make the things that matter happen. Suddenly, conversations about where you're working actually completely disappear. You know, the, the conversation about remote work versus in office work, even though it's taken up a lot of this conversation, is remarkably boring. Like people should be much more focused on what is the best way to get their job done. And I think when people start working that way, they realize that actually, you know, if you go into the office on Tuesday because of your free will and your decision to be there, then you can orchestrate your day to get the most out of it. That means that you can best spend the rest of your week accomplishing meaningful work. It may be that you get so much done on the Tuesday that you then decide of your own accord to go in on a Thursday. It then may be that on the Thursday you then get invited to a really exciting meeting on the Friday. But because you're in control of these decisions and because you're making meaningful outputs happen, all of a sudden it feels very different. It's a bit like wearing a suit. Like I love wearing a suit when I don't have to wear a suit. The moment you're told every day to wear a suit is an awful thing to do. I think of sort of in-person working as being the same. And it's amazing how often you choose to wear a suit. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good example. And I think you get to the heart of something really critical, which was the reason why work was so dissatisfying or is so dissatisfying for so many people right now is they never feel a meaningful sense that they've completed something. Absolutely. They've, you know, I think in... Um, there's some stats in, in my new book which say that sort of 80% of people say they work in a team and over half of them say they have no meaningful contribution to what the team does. So you're just part of these Zoom calls where you're a face in a crowd, but you're not actually doing something. You feel you feel like you're part of a tug of war, but if, you're, if your presence wasn't there, it probably wouldn't be noticed. It's a, you know, the experience of work for so many people is that they're part of a bureaucracy actually in truth a lot of the expensive compensation that we see really is compensation for unhappiness like free food in a cafeteria um you know a pool table that people can use occasionally ping pong 
like for me, these should be outcomes of a place where people get their job done so well and they're so proud to work with great people that they end up doing this stuff. You know, Thursday, Thursday, Thursday should be a sort of an outcome from people that like spending time with each other, not an input that's desperately trying to get people drunk enough to like each other and come into the office. I think, um, you know, maybe it's simplistic, but I, I can't help believe that if people had a real sense of accomplishment and they could see genuine progress towards something that the company has made clear is important, that everything in most people like ours jobs would suddenly become deeply simple. And we would see much greater levels of satisfaction. We'd see far lower levels of burnout. And we'd see all of the decisions that we have to make all of the time. Any decision to do with expenses, decisions to do with bureaucracy, decisions to do with prioritization, they all become remarkably easy under this framework. It, it really strikes you that there's a, there's a strong gap in the market, though, isn't it? Because like you're, a lot of the stuff that you post on LinkedIn about is, you know, a, is this curiosity about opportunities, nowism, as you style it, but, you know, opportunities that organizations can seize now or the way that they can respond to what customers Customers are actually doing right now to seek advantage. And it's about sort of touchable levels of innovation and opportunism. And, you know, based on that, there's a whole opportunity for organizations to be thinking about organizational design. And quite often the org chart is kind of like an accident of what happens at the top <laughs> table, right? Sort of like, uh, well, that, that's going to go into that person because he seems to have insecurity about his team getting smaller and that going into that person. And, you know, actually we're going to structure it like this. And there's nothing yes. about, okay, if we want a high-functioning, curious organization that's going to produce more innovation and have a highly motivated team who feel like they've got some sense yeah. of cohesiveness, this is the way we orchestrate it. This it feels like the you know no doubt consultancy firms will turn up and and offer a, a, a multi million dollar sort of contract to do this for people, but it seems like there's a gap to to build that org design in a more enlightened way. It was always funny for me because I think in the last twelve years of advertising, I never once saw an org chart. Um, I asked many times for them. But people were almost so embarrassed by how convoluted they were and how much they reflected the egos of the people that worked there. Um, the people were ashamed to, to share them. Um, there's a whole chapter in my book really about sort of organizational design for the future. Um, and in particular, it sort of focuses on efficiency. Um, so many departments are staffed based on the revenue of that department. Um, I once was asked to put forward a dream team to serve a huge uh, mobile phone account in America. Um, and I decided to staff it with seven people of which three would be, um, sort of consultants or freelancers who were amazing at what they did. And then I was told very quickly to make it 90 people because we got paid for every bum that we put on a seat. And therefore, we wouldn't make enough money that way. We'd make the rest of the agency look bad. And I think that's, um, that's an example of where we are. Like we need much more discernment, much more ambition, much more imagination, much more empathy. We need much more sort of bravery. We need to sort of create the structures and the systems and the processes um, and the sort of visions for the future. And when we do that, everything becomes quite simple. Tell, tell, come on, we'll finish on that. But, you know, tell me then about you've, your book, because um, you, you wrote a book and then you rewrote the same book or like you, you, you rethought it. And I, I love that as a way to, as an iterative way to actually yeah. get your thoughts down on paper. It's like it's sort of the way that Kanye redoes redoes albums. It's the Kanye of business books. <laughs> That's a much better way to market it. I mean, it was a mistake, you know. Like it was, it's genuinely a very stupid way to do it. But I was, 
I was aware that my old book was not in any way old, but the publisher wanted me to do a new book. Um, I found the idea of writing a brand new book in the middle of the pandemic to be sort of horrific to my brain. Um, And then they asked me to sort of redo the book. And I basically started on page one. And it was a bit like when you do sort of... um, and I replace on the type board where I ended up just sort of replacing the whole book by starting afresh. And it's actually a much better book. It's a completely different book, but it's called the same book. Um, but it's the second edition of digital Darwinism. It's basically looking much more pragmatically at how companies can change for the future. Um, the first book I was quite shy. I was a little bit unsure of whether what I was asking or what I was saying was right. So it was kind of a, a naive and provocative list of questions really. Um, and this one's a much more authoritative, but still quite naive, um, sort of system of questions and theories um, and advice, really, on how companies can deal with change. You know, if you're a bank today, how do you deal with neobanks? If you're a car company, how do you evaluate the competitive landscape? If you're a company that needs to change but can't change, how can you bring about a culture of change? Um, it's a much more sort of useful and thoughtful and concrete book on how to get really excited about what we can build and how we can actually make that happen. And it's it's out now. It, what were the biggest things that you felt that you'd come back to and you refreshed your mind, or what had surprised you since the time that you'd first done it? Because you'd only done it a couple of years before. It was interesting to me that it was not out of date. I mean, I, I wrote it before the pandemic, and one would imagine that when you go back to update it, you're quite embarrassed by the things that you said. And I think partly because it was quite vague. You know, if I'd made predictions about you know stocks that may be worth double then you can be wrong. But I guess it was sufficiently vague that it couldn't really be wrong. Um, the main thing I was aware of, when I wrote the first one, I was quite into this idea that the world is changing faster than ever, that everything's getting more chaotic and complicated, that we live at this remarkable moment in time where everything's different and challenging. And then by the time I came to the second one, and this is quite sort of counterintuitive given that we've just gone through a once in a lifetime pandemic but i actually kind of come to the conclusion that most change is not that fast that most future scenarios are not that hard to predict and that actually companies should be a little bit more relaxed and perhaps a little bit more thoughtful and slow but more profound in how they go about change um, I mean, we still haven't really got to grips with electricity in the world. It's been around for about sort of 140 you know, odd years. We still have different plugs in different company countries. We have different voltages, different hertz. Um, you know, we still have USB-C and USB-B chargers. We have a sort of mess of electricity. We haven't really made sense of computers. We haven't really made sense of mobile phones. We haven't really made sense of cloud computing. We haven't made sense of what 3G could do. Um, So a lot of it really is trying to sort of reassure people and say, let's look at how the core fundamentals of the world have changed. Let's look at how consumer expectations have changed. Let's use what we have and create a much more ambitious vision for the future. You know, if you're a bank, think of the amazing ways that you can make money with what you have. If you're a retailer, think how you could structure to best take advantage of the fact that you can reach billions of people on social media. 
Um, this is a really, really wonderful time for companies to have these big transformative visions for the future. And I think that's why I get a bit frustrated that everyone's sort of hiding away in their homes, hoping to, hoping to get by. Because I think this is a really amazing time for sort of companies to explode into new forms and to do things that make people really excited to be part of things and to do things that make people really proud to accomplish what they have. And I'm sort of hoping that we can start to make that happen soon. If you were thinking that there were some steps that organisations could take to to work and thrive in this hybrid world, what would you be thinking? I think a couple of things. I mean, number one, trust people. Um, and you only get trust by giving it. It's quite an unusual thing. You know, start to trust absolutely everybody until they give you a reason not to. And often when you trust people massively, they make it very clear very early on that they're thriving or they make it very clear early on that you can't do that. And either way is a good outcome. I think the second thing, we should be far less focused on workplace as a place and work time as a time. And we should be, you know, thinking not as this sort of linear calculation that the factory is open from this time till this time and the longer you work, the more you get done. And much more thinking about what are the meaningful things that our company is working towards and how can we ensure that people are accomplishing as much as they can towards those goals. And I think when you have the combination of trust and a clarity of what people are trying to do, everything else becomes quite easy because you don't need to worry about when people are working or where people are working or what they're doing. You just trust people to get things done. Um, and you realize that when you trust people to be brilliant, often they will be. And often they'll make decisions which they're not empowered to do, which are great decisions. Often they will say no to projects that they know are unhelpful uses of their time, which are a good way for them to focus. And I think that movement towards a more mature and sort of empowered way to do business can only be a good thing for everybody. Fabulous. I'd, I'd love to sort of, as we wrap up, I, I'd love to get a sense of what you're reading or what you're inspired by or what's caught your attention lately. Where, where, where's your head at right now? I Disappointingly, I don't tend to read lots of really long, thoughtful, intelligent books. Um, I, I really do spend a lot of my time observing the world. So I spend a lot of my time, I went to Sweden three times in the middle of the pandemic um, I enjoy talking to founders of technology companies to listen to the, why they set up their company and what it's there to do. Um, so most of my reading just comes from social media um, and just comes from looking at the great pieces that, or the great works of uh, the, the sort of interesting people are asking interesting questions about. Fab, always good to chat to you, Tom. And, uh, and I hope next time we'll, we'll meet in person again. But um, I'm really grateful for your time today. I'd love that. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks to Tom Goodwin. Thank you so much for that. Like I say, there's a link to his book in the show notes. And if you're interested in the culture course I mentioned at the outset, you can also sign up and uh, do that. The book is out on the 25th of August. Um, I'm sort of just getting ready to do some uh, some promotion for it. So, you know, by all means, I'd love to hear... Um, you know, if, if you if you've got sort of anyone you want me to speak to or organisations you want me to come in and talk to, uh, that's all available to you, and you can see some of that on the most recent newsletter. So, I've been really grateful for your company today. I'll see you next time. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. 
Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.